Who would have thought when we started the Parsha podcast seven years ago that we would still be going strong, wrapping up year seven of the Parsha podcast with the help of the Almighty and with your dedicated listenership from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. And now, here's the plan for year eight. The way I want to couch this is that there's a motif in Jewish philosophy that the number seven is always nature. It's always what you would expect. And seven plus one is always supernatural. So we have the, you know, the seven days of the week and then uh, the, the, the seven yearly cycle with the Shemitah. And then we have circumcision, the brismila, which is on day eight, which is supernatural. It's the bonding of the baby and the Almighty, seven plus one. And then you have seven times seven, which is 49, of course. And then plus one, of course, that is the festival of Shavuos, when the Jewish people had the audience, the marriage, if you will, with the Almighty. We have, of course, the Yovel cycle, which is that supernatural cycle. We have the Sanhedrin, which is seven times 10 plus one, 71. That's a long way of saying that year eight, it's got to be something supernatural. We have to go beyond the natural. And I was thinking originally that we're going to call next year DOD, like Department of Defense. Torah, after all, it's a, it's a defense against the Yitzhara. Torah's defense against mediocrity, against not achieving your potential. Torah's defense against living a life that won't reverberate for eternity. Torah's defense. The Talmud tells us, of course, Torah magna umatzla, it protects, it defends, and it offers salvation, even if you're not studying it. And then I was thinking, well, DOD is Department of Defense, and maybe we'll do a dash of depth. If we're going to have a supernatural year with the help of the Almighty, we're going to try to grow a little bit deeper, a little bit more supernatural, to try to see behind the text, beyond the text, in the subtext, what's the subplot of the parsha? What are the secrets? What are the mysteries? What's what's happening? What's lurking beneath the surface? What's behind the veneer? What's behind the facade? Of course, we know Torah is multidimensional. It's multifaceted. We're told that there are 70 facets of Torah. And there are 50 dimensions of understanding. And you put those two together, there's 120 layers of understanding. And it's as broad as the sea and as deep as the ocean. The Torah, the Talmud tells us, it's like a stone. You shatter it and the shards fly in all directions. One verse in the Torah, one section, one paragraph in the Torah. There's so many different ways that it can go. So many different angles and dimensions to every verse, to every word, to every letter, to every crownlet above a letter in the Torah. Of course, when we read the verse, when we read any verse, the simple interpretation of the text, it's not to be ignored. Every verse has to have a basic understanding, and that's, of course, very legitimate. But just as the simple interpretation of the text it's important. So too is the deeper interpretation of the text. And next year, year eight, please God, we're going to try to explore some of the ideas that go beyond the basic interpretation to go a bit deeper. Now, I was going to call it DOD, but it was a little too militaristic. 
ultimately I settled on D-A-D, dad, deeper and deeper. And I like the idea of a dad because the Torah, of course, binds us to God. But we also come from some pretty glorious history. And Torah binds us with the previous generations, with our antecedents. And we have an uninterrupted line going all the way back to Sinai, back to Moshe, from teacher to student, back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, father to son, parent to child, generation to generation. And we're studying Torah. We're about to start a new cycle. And we're studying the same words that more than a hundred of our ancestors did. The same words, the same exact words, the same exact letters, the same books, the same paragraph breaks. And we're going into the same text, the same Torah, the same weekly parsha, And we're adding ourselves to this long and glorious chain. We're hopefully going to be another link on this illustrious chain. Of course, this is something that we know. Perhaps we underappreciate it. And I want to focus on that as well. On year eight, please God, of the Parsha podcast. Dad. This connects us to our forefathers, to our great, illustrious predecessors. And we're going to try to go deep behind the parsha, deep and deeper. And my plan is, please God, to do a few segments, either two or three or maybe more. And to delve in a little bit, to delve in, to go a little bit deeper and try to see what's happening beneath the surface to the best of our ability. After this week, there are only three weeks left or three parshas left in the current cycle. What can I say? It's a tremendous accomplishment. I know many of y'all didn't miss a single week. It's really something to celebrate. But now you know, we have a plan for next year. We're going to shake things up here a bit. The Parsha podcast will, with the help of the Almighty, continue And now we know the format, Dad, deep and deeper. But now, we're still in year seven. And let's begin with Parshas Kisavo. I'm going to start off by saying something very audacious. This is maybe the most important Parsha podcast to date. Almost seven years of this. Seven full years. What you are about to hear, it's going to be very vital pivotal, imperative, critical for your life, for our life, for everyone's life. And I think in our time, in our age, in the modern age, this is particularly important. And what we're going to discover today, it's going to be something that, please God, will enhance and enrich our lives. Not just ideas. Of course, ideas are always important. And whatever you study in Torah, It's valuable. You wouldn't change it. You wouldn't exchange it for anything. But this will have a material, appreciable, substantial impact on our lives if we choose to accept it and to integrate it into our behavior. The Parsha starts off with Bikurim, the mitzvah of the first fruits. You get to the land, you have your field, and you start planting And you plant one or maybe even more 
of the special fruits that the land of Israel is praised with. There are seven distinct fruits that the land of Israel is praised with, and they are wheat, barley, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, and dates. And you plant one or more of these species, and then, of course, you work the field and you you plow and you till and you and it's time to harvest. And when you notice the first fruit of a given year's crop, you designate it, you wrap a ribbon around it. And then you bring all the first fruits to Jerusalem. And you put in a nice decorative basket and there's a whole procession and you arrive in Jerusalem and you bring it to the temple and you present it to the Kohen. And there's a whole process of what you need to do. And you make this elaborate proclamation. This is one of the few mitzvahs in the Torah that has with it a specific text that you say when you fulfill the mitzvah, you proclaim this declaration. And you talk about the history of our family, going back to Laban and going down to Egypt. And when we arrived in Egypt, we were really small and we burgeoned and we grew into a great nation. But the Egyptians mistreated us and they tormented us and they made us work in very harsh conditions. And we cried out to Hashem, our God, the God of our forefathers. And he heard our voice and he saw our pain and he saw our suffering and he saw our torment. And he took us out of Egypt with a strong hand, with an outstretched arm, with great miracles and awesome signs and wonders and brought us to this land. Of course, this is before the nation arrives in the land, but they're told what they need to do once they're in the land. He brought us to this land and he gave us this land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And now I'm bringing the first fruits of my field, of the field that you gave me, and you place it before Shem your God, you bow before Shem your God. This is the fulfillment of the mitzvah. You take the fruits after you designated it, you bring it to Jerusalem in the nice decorative bag and the whole ceremonial ascent to Jerusalem. You give it to the Kohen, you wave it, and you make this very long proclamation. And then the section concludes that you will be joyous with all the good that Hashem gave you. This is the mitzvah of Bikurim. It's a very elaborate process. We have this unprecedented declaration. And I want to focus on the final verse in this section, where it says that you will be joyous with all the good that God gives you. What is the nature of this joy? Why is there this verse right after bringing Bikurim, the first fruits, and the verse tells us you will be joyous? What's this epilogue to this mitzvah? You have this declaration, it's six verses, of what the person who brings the Bikurim says. And afterwards, the verse tells us, you will be joyous with all the good that Hashem gives you. This is not part of the declaration. It implies that after you finish bringing the Bikurim, there is a byproduct of this, and that's joy. Seemingly, the Torah knows for sure that after you bring the Bikurim, you will be joyous. What does that mean? Maybe you won't be joyous. What is the connection between Bikurim, this mitzvah of the first fruit, and joy? Now, joy appears 
in another place in the parsha. Actually, it's in two other places, but we're going to focus on one of them in a very different context. So we have Bikurim, and then the parsha proceeds to talk about the tithing cycle and the bond between the nation and God. And all the things that we need to do on day one after crossing the Jordan, going to Mount Gerizim, Mount Abel, and all that whole process. And then the parsha takes a very sharp turn. We have the blessings and the curses. If you do good, you will be recipients, the nation is told, of wonderful, bountiful blessings. But if you disobey God, we will be subject to the most vicious, horrific maledictions. It's a very difficult portion to read. It's very painful. It's very depressing to read. In fact, the custom is when it's read in shul, the reader reads it in a very low tone and very fast. If you're reading the parsha with the reader, it's really hard to keep up. And then, right in the middle of these bone-chilling curses, we're given a reason. Why are we deserving of this terrible treatment? So the verse tells us, chapter 28, verse 47, why are we suffering in the event that we have all these curses, all these maledictions? Why are we suffering so much? Because we did not worship, we did not serve Hashem, our God, with joy and with a good heart when we had everything. The punishment It's not for disobeying God. If you read the verse very carefully, you'll notice this is kind of disturbing. The punishment is not targeted for disobedience of God, but rather for the lack of joy while obeying God, while serving God. We did serve God, but not with joy. Evidently, joy is something that we are punished for not having. That's how you read the verse. 2847. So, of course, this raises a question, and all the commentaries talk about it, of course. How can someone be punished for lacking an emotion? How can the lack of joy be something that we are held liable for? So, we have the beginning of the parsha and the Bikurim, and this whole ceremony, and then we have the Torah testifying that when you're done, you'll be joyous. And then joy appears in a very different context in the admonition, in this this terrible litany of curses that befall the nation. And we're told the reason, because we did not serve the Almighty with joy. What's going on? What is the Torah's view on joy? If we expand our scope we'll see that the Torah's treatment of this emotion, of this experience of joy, it seems to be at odds with our understanding. The Talmud tells us, this is featured in the book of Titus on page 29a, when the month of Av, that sounds funny in English, but there's a month in the Hebrew calendar, in the the Jewish calendar called Av or Menachem Av, So the month of of, when that month arrives, we diminish, we reduce joy. When the month of Adar appears, 
the month that's before Purim, before the month of Nisan, which has Pesach, Passover. When the month of Adar comes, then we increase joy. So the Talmud tells us that there are two months. In one month, we increase the joy, and in one, we reduce the joy. This is a very interesting citation. For one, we've pointed this out in the past. This Talmud is telling us that we always have to be joyous. The only question is, is it more, is it less? Are we adding or are we reducing, but we're never eliminating joy completely? But the subtext of this Talmud is that joy is completely manipulable. It's a dial. You could spin it in this direction, increase it, ramp it up. You could spin it in the other direction, ramp it down. You want more joy? You rotate it like this. You want less? Then you rotate it in the opposite direction. It's completely in our hands. It's completely up to us. And therefore, in this month, okay, you move it of notch this direction. And in that month, you change the direction and you spin it the other direction. That is what the Talmud is telling us. And this is a very radical concept. And it it violates our understanding of joy. For us, joy, it's not something that you can manipulate. It seems random. It seems out of our control. If I have a good day and things are working out and my team wins and my favorite politician has a good zinger by the debate and it's nice weather outside and I make a good deal in business and the show that I watch is funny, if I have a good day, well, then I'm joyous. If I have a bad day, well, I'm liable to be less joyous. That's, I think, I don't want to judge you, but that's my sense of how society today views this subject. Oh, I had a bad day, so I'm depressed. I'm sad. Oh, things didn't work out, so I'm sad. Oh, things are great. (laughs) I'm so happy. I'm so joyous. Again, without making any statements that are universal, it seems like that's how society views, views the concept of joy. The Torah disagrees with this premise. The Torah tells us that there's a dial of joy. You can manually turn it in whatever direction you want to. There's a way to increase joy. You want to be more joyous? Turn it in this direction. And there's a way to be less joyous. You have a joystick. And depending upon which direction you spin the dial, so to speak, that will determine the level of joy that you have at that time. According to the Torah, you can decouple joy from circumstance. Circumstances, it can have no bearing on our state of joy. So what is the Torah's understanding of this whole subject of joy? And why does Bikurim, after Bikurim is over, it automatically triggers joy. And then we have how someone could be held accountable for a lack of joy. How do we turn this dial? How do we increase it during the month of Adar and decrease it during the month of Av? What is the mechanisms by which we turn the dial? So it's obvious to us, of course, why this is something which would be very valuable 
to know. We started off by saying, this is such an important podcast. You have to listen very carefully. This is our setup. We all want to be happier. We all want to be more joyous. We'd love to be more joyous. Who doesn't want to be more joyous? Who doesn't want to know the secret of the dial of joy? Everyone wants to remove moodiness, fickleness, circumstances from their state of being, from their temperament, from their equilibrium, from their state of joy. So this is an important subject for all of us. It's obvious. If we happen to be someone, a person who wants to advance in our life, wants to advance in our understanding, the Kabbalists tell us that there's nothing that impedes understanding as much as sadness. Sadness is destructive and holds a person back. And I think in our society, it's a, this is a very germane and, and topical subject. There is today a sadness and hopelessness epidemic. I read a study from the CDC from the years 2009, not so long ago, to 2021, the share of American high school students who say they feel, quote, persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. Think about that. Persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. It rose from 26%. So one out of four people or high school age kids is saying that they're just persistently feeling sad or hopeless. It went up to 44%. Almost half of the high school age children in America feel persistently sad or hopeless. This, unsurprisingly, is the highest level of teenage sadness ever recorded. For some reason today, when we have incredible material abundance, somehow joy, exuberant, consistent joy, it seems to be harder and harder. We all want to be more joyous. We want to be in control of our emotions. And now we can learn the secret. And I'll tell you something interesting. We spoke a few weeks, months ago. I don't know. The the months and weeks kind of bleed into each other. We spoke about how we have 10 verbs for prayer. You remember that? The Eskimos, but we're not allowed to call them Eskimos. That's not the proper term. The first people, whatever it is, they have 50 different words for snow. And we we have 10 different words for prayer. We're experts at prayer. We, we see the nuances. They're all different, different types of prayers. I discovered this week that there's a midrash that says that we have 10 different words for joy. In Scripture, the Midrash tells us, there are 10 different words that are used to describe joy. In the Torah, there are only two, but the rest of the Tanakh, the rest of Scripture, you find the other eight as well. And I found all sorts of fascinating literature to try to differentiate. What is the difference between Rina and Sahala and Chedva and Ditsa? These are all Hebrew words. What's the difference between Simcha and Sason and Gila? These are all different words. 
and the precise differences are expressed by the different verb. Our sages were such experts in joy that they're able to see the nuances in the different types, the precise differences, the subtle differences between all these different types of joy. The sages were joy kanyashenti. We should listen to them and try to figure out what they have to say about the subject. Modern society, we're not experts. Today, we're not. Look at how bad things are. So what is the secret of joy? What's this dial? The Parsha starts off with Bikurim, the first fruits. And you bring it to Jerusalem. And there's this whole elaborate ceremony in this decorative basket. And you bring it to the Kohen and bring it to the temple and you wave it. And you thank God, not just about the fruits, but go back to Laban and the history and the, down to Egypt and he heard our prayers. And then you mentioned, well, he brought us this land, land flowing with milk. And, I, and now we finally have some fruits and we want to thank God. Rashi tells us something very, very important. Rashi explains, what is the sentiment of this mitzvah? Vamarte, love, you should say, She'encha kafui tova, that you are not an ingrate. The emphasis of this mitzvah, the sentiment behind this mitzvah, Rashi tells us, is that when God gives you crops, when your fields, they yield, they yield fruits, you thank God. And you display your gratitude by taking that first fruit, by taking the Bikurim and bringing it to the temple in this elaborate ceremony, in the decorative basket, and the song and pomp and ceremony and this declaration, that is the idea behind this mitzvah. Now, what if a person has a very small yield? The bounty, it's kind of tiny. He really doesn't have a lot. He barely squeezes by. He's living on the brink of starvation, but he does have some fruits. He has some wheat, some barley, some grapes, etc. Does he still bring Bikurim? And the answer is yes. He too takes a decorative basket and this whole elaborate ceremony, and he still makes the declaration of six verses, and he's still expressing appreciation and gratitude to God for what God gave him. And the stale doesn't matter. No matter how much or how little he gave you, this mitzvah instructs you to take the first fruits, that first flowering of your labor. You worked so hard and you sweated so much. And that first dollar, that first fruit, that first result of all your hard work you bring it to Jerusalem and you express your appreciation to God. Bikurim is about expressing gratitude for what you have, for what you got, regardless of how it compares to your neighbor, regardless of how you wish it would have been bigger, grander, more. You hope for something bigger, a bigger yield. You wished you had more. Regardless of all of that, 
Bikurim is about focusing on what you do have and appreciating it and expressing gratitude for it. Focusing on what you do have and not for a second on what you don't have. And taking what you have and going to celebrate with it in Jerusalem and giving it to the Kohen and expressing gratitude. That sixth verse proclamation. That's Bikurim. And after you do that process, the verse announces, you will be joyous with what Hashem gives you. Right after a Bikurim process comes joy. And where's the joy coming from? What's the cause? What's the impetus? What's the catalyst for this joy? The catalyst is the recognition of what the Almighty, what our Father in Heaven gave you, and the celebration of that, and the expressing gratitude for that. That is what causes joy. And what reduces joy? When you focus on what you don't have, even if you have a lot, you could still be very sad. This may be surprising for people that have a little. But not everyone who has a lot is happy. And not everyone who has a little, of course, in relative terms, is sad. Even if you have a ton, you could still be sad if you focus on what you don't have. If joy is the byproduct of Bikurim, anything that resembles a Bikurim-like process, sadness is the byproduct of being anti-Bikurim. Bikurim is focusing on what you have, while anti-Bikurim, it's focusing on what you don't have. Bikurim is about celebrating what you have. Anti-Bikurim is, is not celebrating what you have. Bikurim is about expressing gratitude and appreciation for what you have, and anti-Bikurim is not expressing gratitude and appreciation for what you have. And this is the dial of joy. And this is how you manipulate it. You want to increase joy? This is what you do. You channel the first fruits. Again, we, we cannot bring the first fruits today. We don't have a temple. Most of us are not farmers. And we're not in Israel. There's a whole host of reasons why we cannot fulfill this mitzvah. Rashi tells us, what is the sentiment that's being expressed here? And the, the verse tells us what is the result of that. If we want to increase joy, we focus on what we have, what God gave us, and we celebrate it, and we thank God for it. And that is how you turn up the dial of joy. You click it, and you move it towards more joy. And if you want to reduce joy, simple. Focus on what you don't have. And don't celebrate what you have. Don't express gratitude and appreciation for what you have. The month of Adar, it's a month that we got a lot from God. And of course, Adar and Rashi there on the Talmud that I quoted, he says that when Adar starts, it doesn't really end until after the following month of Nisan. This is the time to increase joy. What does it mean to focus on what we have? Focus on what God gave us. Focus 
on the incredible bond that he forged with us. He saved us from Haman and he saved us from Egypt and he loves us and wants a connection with us. And we express gratitude over that. We have entire festivals, Purim, of course, Pesach. It's all about gratitude for what we have and what God did for us. And that's how you raise the dial of joy. In the month of Av, that's the month that we lost the temple. We lost Jerusalem. We lost God's presence in our midst. And the mitzvah, the emphasis of this month is to focus on that. Focus on what we lost. Focus on what we don't have. We don't have a temple. We don't have Jerusalem. Well, we might have Jerusalem physically. We don't have the spiritual Jerusalem. We don't have God's presence in our midst. And we're supposed to focus on that. And that is how you dial down the joy. By focusing on what you don't have. It's completely in our hands. This notion that joy is just beyond our control, the Torah does not believe that. It's completely in our hands. We have the joystick. And we can choose which way to turn it. Now, I want to add some inside baseball. I want to connect this idea with some other ideas that we have discussed in the past. And if we only have, you know, four more episodes in this cycle, I, f- I figure I could go a little technical and maybe not lose the audience. I know some of y'all are listening while you're jogging or you're in the subway or you're doing chores. Not everyone is following along in the books and checking the sources. I know some are, which is why I always strive to include the sources. But for the next three minutes, it's going to be a bit technical, and it's much easier to follow if you see the sources inside, preferably in the original Hebrew. Here's the other point I want to add. In Genesis, we read about Jacob and his twin brother Asaph. And it's a long story. We'll get to it, please God, in a few weeks, in year eight, in cycle eight of the Parsha podcast. But uh, Jacob is younger, and he somehow gets the blessings, and Esau is not happy about that. He wants to kill him, and he has to flee, and then they eventually re- reunite 20 years later. And we, we read a very sharp contrast between how Jacob views what he has, and how Esau views what he has when they reunite, when they meet again. This is in Genesis chapter 33, and this is verses 9 through 11. Esau says, I have a lot. And Jacob says, I have everything. Esau, the older brother, the redhead, he's a little bit more violent. If you haven't read that story, a little bit more of a loose cannon with red hair, ruddy. Watch out. He says, I have a lot. And Jacob says, I have everything. I have all. And all, what does all mean? How could anyone say they have all? That, the commentaries tell us, it means that Jacob is saying, everything that I have, I need. Everything I need, I have. And that's why Jacob crossed the river and he endangered himself to try to get those small jugs. And this is the philosophy of Jacob, and is born out of deep faith. Everything is governed by God. Everything is overseen. Everything is perfect. And therefore, I have everything. I must have everything because God will not send me unprepared. He must give me everything that I need. 
and everything that he gives me must be for a reason. And that's the philosophy of Jacob. And Esav has a different philosophy. He has a lot. And he wants more. He has more than he needs. And God is not featured in that calculation. So that's the background. If you look in our Parsha, we have two verses that we contrasted. We have Bikurim, and this whole process, bringing the fruits of Jerusalem, and the whole declaration. And the next verse tells us, 26, 11, that this inspires, this engenders joy. And then we have the punishments that's spawned, we're told, chapter 28, verse 47. They're spawned by sadness, by a lack of joy. If you compare these two verses in Devarim, in Deuteronomy 28, 47, and 26, 11, and you compare them to Genesis 33, verses 9 and 11, you'll see that the exact same words that differentiate Jacob and Esau differentiate the joy and the sadness of our Parsha. The verse says, V'samachta bikol. Jacob says, Yeshli kol. Why is this person joyous after the Brimikurim? It's because they have embodied the ideals, the philosophy, the worldview, the Weltanschauung. That's a Parsha podcast favorite word. The Weltanschauung of Jacob. Jacob said, Yeshli kol, v'samachta bakol. Whereas the person who's sad, he's the one who has rove. And he favored the Esav philosophy over the Jacob philosophy. He swapped, so to speak, the rove for the coal. When you realize that God gives you what you have, and he gives you exactly what you need, then you realize you have everything. And when you forget about that, you may have a lot, but you never have everything, and you always want more. And what does Jacob's attitude spawn? What is it? Infuse, what does it bring to bring out in a person? It brings out joy. And Asaph's approach brings sadness. Now, there's a really cool thing that I discovered this week. There's only one person in the Torah that is described as being joyous. Joy appears in many places in the Torah. Only two of the aforementioned ten verbs of joy appear in the Torah, but it's used exactly once to describe a person. The rest of the time it's either speaking generically, or it's meant to be joyous, or describing what will happen. But only once is a person featured in the Torah, and the Torah says that he is joyous. And this is all the way back in Exodus chapter 4. And long-time listeners of the Parsha Podcast know how much we love revisiting this verse. Moshe is being commissioned to go save the Jewish people from their plight in Egypt. And he is resistant to go lead the nation, to accept this role. And he's primarily worried about how his older brother Aaron will take it that the younger brother is going to have this promotion. And God gets angry with Moshe, I think this is chapter 4, maybe verse 14 of Exodus. And God tells Moshe, you worried about Aaron? 
He's coming towards you. And when he sees you and he realizes that you were promoted and he was not placed on that same pedestal, he'll see you and he'll be happy in his heart. Don't think that he's upset, that he thinks that he was passed over. He'll be happy. He'll be joyous in his heart. And Rashi says that Aaron, in fact, was joyous in his heart. And that's why Aaron merited to wear the breastplate of the high priest on his heart. So isn't it fascinating that the only person who the Torah describes as being joyous is Aaron, and what's he joyous about? What did he get that made him so happy? Well, he's joyous about his demotion or his relative demotion compared to, to Moshe. He's joyous in what he doesn't have. How's that possible? That is the attitude of Jacob. It's a deep recognition that what I have, I got from God. And what I need, God gives me. And what I don't need, well, that I don't get. That is the attitude of Jacob. And that attitude begets joy. And Rashi tells us that because of this, he merited the breastplate. Aaron is worthy of bearing the sons of Jacob on his heart. He embodies the spirit of Jacob, and therefore the tribes of Jacob, they rightfully rest upon his chest. We're towards the end of the seventh cycle of the Parsha podcast. I know that by now you could handle some real talk. I'm talking to myself here as well. Sadness is a choice. Sadness is a choice. Joy is a choice. And we all have a dial. And we can manipulate it. You want to be sad? It's very, very easy to do. You want to be joyous? It is doable. It's not just the product of circumstances. Now, we're not utopian We're not Pollyannish in our view of the world. And we realize that sometimes bad things happen, painful things happen. The Torah does not believe that when something bad happens, God forbid, we should be sad. The only time we're told to be sad is when we realize that we don't have the temple and focus on what we don't have and therefore you should be sad. Even during hard times, you could be joyous. We know the Talmud tells us that a precondition for prophecy is joy. If you're not joyous, you cannot be a prophet. In chapter 4 of the book of Jonah, which, please God, we will read on Yom Kippur, Jonah tells God that he was so pained, he'd rather be dead. That sounds like depression. That sounds like sadness. But if God's talking to him, that means that Jonah's experiencing prophecy. And prophecy is only possible if there's joy. So how is Jonah talking to God and saying, I'd rather be dead? This is an insight. When there's pain, it doesn't necessarily mean there has to be sadness. There has to be depression. That's not necessarily the appropriate response. We're told, we're taught, we're trained here. 
you can bear pain with joy. Jeremiah, he wrote the most depressing book of the Tanakh, Echa, Lamentations. And he wrote it with prophecy. It must be he wrote it with joy. Could he be crying and be joyous? Could he be grievously pained and joyous? Jeremiah says yes. Even, God forbid, if we have hard times, it could be full of joy. It could be with the realization that the Almighty has a plan for you and we don't necessarily understand it, but we can rely on Him and we know that it's for our benefit. And we can focus on what we do have and the fact that we still have life and this flicker of opportunity within us and how incredibly lucky we are to be in such a state. How much would people give up to have another day of life, those who are no longer with us? Our parsha starts off with Biturim. And this is the recipe for joy. This is how you move the dial of joy in that direction. Focus on what you have. Don't compare it to what someone else has. It's small. It's such a pathetic yield. My, my field is tiny. And the neighbors look how big his field is and how rich and robust his fruits are. No, that's not being important. Focus on what you have and celebrate it and put it in a nice decorative basket and dance with it to Jerusalem and bring it to the temple and to the Kohen and thank God for it. Express your appreciation, your gratitude. That breeds joy. You want sadness? There are apps on your phone. Maybe not. Maybe you're like me. There's no apps, no social media apps on your phone. But there's an app on many people's phones, maybe even most people's phone, that is designed to spawn sadness. It could be a joy-reducing app. I don't think that's what it's called, but it could be called that. Or maybe... Maybe not, maybe not joy reducing. How about, how about, let's talk to the PR guys. How about we call it sadness inducing app? Oh, that won't sell either. We'll call it Insta sad. Will that go? <laughs> what do you guys think? Insta sad. Instantly become sad. You can open it up and you'll see everyone else and all that they have and everyone's looking perfect and they're all having tons of fun that you're not having. And they're all so talented and so beautiful and so amazing. And they're all more intelligent than you and taller. And they have a fuller head of hair. And they have a better spouse and a larger and more opulent home and a newer car and more obedient kids and a faster metabolism. And when you look at it and you see all the stuff that you don't have, it's the sad why anyone would spend any time at all doing that to themselves, I don't know. But let me ask you a question. If half of American teenagers feel persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness, half of them, so much sadness. Maybe this is the reason everyone's turning the dial of joy all the way to the sadness Is it a shock that everyone's sad? If everyone's spending so much time looking at other people and salivating at what they don't have, of course, people are going to be sad. 
Isn't that a shame? If we have gratitude and we celebrate what we have, that begets joy. I heard a story from the COVID era. It was an 87-year-old man who had a bad case of COVID and they put him on a ventilator and he was kind of hanging between life and death. And ultimately he pulled through and they took him off the ventilator after two weeks and he survived. Wow, thank God. And they said, okay, well, here's the bill. Here's the bill for your hospital stay, $10,000. And the man started crying. And they felt bad. Maybe he doesn't have the money. I don't know. Medicare, Social Security. Uh, we'll, we'll, well, let's cut off some of the money. We'll, we'll do half. And the man's sobbing. Oh, we'll do a third. And he tells him, I'm not crying over the fact that it's going to cost me a lot of money. But now I have a price tag. How much does two weeks of breathing cost? Two weeks of breathing costs $10,000. I've been around for 87 years. How much breathing did I do for free? And how I didn't appreciate it. If you are breathing, the Midrash tells us, every time you breathe, you have to sing a praise to God. All the soul should thank God, says the Midrash, the soul, the word for soul in Hebrew is neshama. And that's hinting at the word neshima, which means a breath, every breath, you have to thank God. We have so much to be thankful for. You breathe, I don't know, some people will breathe more intensely. If you're recording a podcast, you're like breathing a lot, like that all the time, because maybe you're nervous, I don't know. If you're panting, you're running, you're breathing a lot more. What is it like? 15 times a minute? 18 times a minute? What is it? If you try the Wim Hof method, you could go a few minutes without breathing. I don't know. Everyone's different. But we have so much to be thankful for. So much. We have so much. If you are fortunate enough to have 10 fingers and a heart that's beating tens of thousands of times a day and eyesight, and the ability to think and to have relationships and to have smiles and to have a good job and to have a loving family. Not everyone has everything, but everyone has something to be joyous with. And if you want to be happy, you want to be joyous, we're told it doesn't matter how much you have. It matters do you have everything or not. Do you focus on what you have? Do you celebrate it? Do you thank God? Do you express your appreciation for that? If you do, you will be joyous. We all want to be joyous. Somehow, our society, contemporary society is just very bad at this. Our sages were experts. And there's no reason why we shouldn't be joyous every day. Exuberant every day. We could do it. And when we do it, we could say, out of joy, and now we know how. Okay, let's all end off the podcast before we get into too much trouble here with a sharp question. The verse tells us, this is in the Blessings 28.6, Baruch Atah Blessed are you when you come 
and blessed are you when you leave. We have this whole section in the parsha where we have the blessings and the curses and starts off with some blessings. And it tells us that if you are deserving of blessings, you'll be blessed when you come and blessed when you leave. What does that mean? So Rashi says, you will be blessed that when you leave the world, you'll be as free of sin as when you came to the world. Blessed are you when you come. Blessed are you when you leave. What does that mean? When you come to the world, you're blessed because you're free of sin. Baby born has zero sins. And you will be blessed when you leave because when you leave, you will also be blessed. You'll also be free of sin. So there are some questions here. First of all, in the curses section of this Blessings and Curses, there's the inverse of that. This is 2819. Cursed are you, God forbid, when you come, and cursed are you when you leave. So how would you read that? Because if blessed when you come means blessed when you come to the world, even someone who is a sinner comes to the world free of sin. So Rashi's interpretation would have a problem. How would you understand the inverse of that? But on the substance of the matter, we have a blessing here in the Torah that you are, are blessed, that you're blessed when you come and blessed when you leave. When you come to the world, you're blessed because you're free of sin. And when you leave, you will also be free of sin. Wait a minute. Don't we have a concept of free will? Don't we believe that there can't be a divine blessing that you'll be free of sin? It's in your hands, not in God's hands. That's a sharp question and a good question to end this Parsha podcast with. The dial of joy. Don't forget this. Dial of joy. We can manipulate it. It's in our hands. Hope everyone has a wonderful rest of their day and week and a joyous, 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 joyous Shabbos and just a joyous life every day, every day. We should all be joyous. Why not? We're going to feel something. Let's feel joy. Let's turn the dial and focus on what we do have. Joy. Every day. Wouldn't that be great? My email address is rabbiwalby at joymail, no, sorry, at gmail.com. I look forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback. And please, God, with healthy money, we will talk again with great joy, please, God, next week.